Hello, and welcome to episode 32 of the Movie Marathoners podcast. I'm your host, Mati, and joining me today is horror expert and film professor, Ryan Terry. Welcome back, Ryan. How are you doing today? Thank you very much for having me back, Mati. I'm uh, excited to uh, talk about our topic today, and it's always a pleasure to be on your show. So once again, thank you so much for having me back. Yeah, so this is our third, I think your third time on the show, right? I think you're right. I, uh, third, yeah. uh, third time. So hopefully third time's a charm. <laughs> <laughs> well, both of the other two times were great. So if they're better, you know, if the third time is better than that, then we'll, we'll be all set. So uh, welcome to the sixth and likely final decade marathon episode where I've been looking at the best films of the 2010s. Uh, just quickly, because this is probably the last one, I just want to say that I've had a blast doing this series and they're some of the best episodes that I've made. I'm really proud of them. So I hope people have enjoyed listening to them because uh, I've definitely learned a lot. And I think all my guests have been fantastic. And I think Ryan is also going to be fantastic. So thank you for everybody who's been a part of that and giving me feedback and everything like that. Um, today, we'll be running through our top five horror films of the last decade. So in case this is your first episode in this format, I'll explain how it's going to go. Ryan and I will take turns counting down our top five films, starting at number five. And in the likely case of overlapping entries, we'll discuss the film the first time it appears on either of our lists. And as always, these are personally subjective lists, and I definitely haven't seen every horror film in the last decade. So just be aware of that. Ryan, are there any like notable films that you think you haven't seen? Ooh, um... I mean, there's always there's there's so many horror films out there. I mean, both, you know, bad and good and and those that yeah. are bad and fun to watch that I think it's practically impossible to have watched all of them um, in terms of like the ones that are the most talked about, most known, if only in t uh, name or title only. Pretty sure I've seen all of them, but you never know when there's a blind spot that comes around. So um, so, yeah, so uh, hopefully uh uh, you will have picked something that perhaps I haven't seen, uh, which <laughs> sucks for discussion, but it does give me something to go out and watch. So either way, I'm uh, looking forward to hearing uh, what you have. I know it was very difficult for me to uh, to whittle down my list to just five. And so uh, if, if time allows, I definitely have some honorable mentions that I'd like to get in there. But uh but yeah, I'm uh, I, I'm excited to dive right on in to see what our top five are. Yeah, sweet. I caught up on a bunch of stuff that I hadn't seen. Like I used these last couple of days just to fill in as many holes as I could. But there's still a whole bunch of them, obviously, that I wanted to check out and didn't. Um, I just wrote a couple of them down. Unfortunately, I didn't see The Witch or Suspiria. It Comes at Night. Doctor Sleep, I, I tried to find. I really wanted to find that somewhere, but I couldn't. And then Lights Out. So just be aware that none of those are on my list, not because I don't like them or anything. It's just because I haven't seen them. So um, <laughs> for spoilers, we'll say that spoilers are fair game for any and all entries on the list. If there's a massive spoiler coming, we'll do our best to give you a fair warning. And I will provide timestamps in the show notes for each film in the event that you want to skip that section to avoid spoilers. And then lastly, we will be skipping the usual point two section to give us a bit more time to discuss these films. So, Ryan, last time we did an episode on 90s horror uh, that was on Halloween. I thought that was really awesome. But this is a brand new decade. What are your general thoughts of the 2010s as like a decade of horror films? 
Oh, it's it's a decade that's uh was really fascinating to go back and explore and just uh just googling the top movies and what releases were that year to uh to give me an idea cuz I didn't start blogging regularly until 2014 and even mm. uh, increasingly so in say 2015. So there's definitely um so say there's like the first 5 years, 4 or 5 years of the decade, uh I can't say that I spent as much time analyzing. Uh, so that was probably the most educational part of my retrospect is like looking at those uh, first few years of the decade because there are films that I saw which I didn't review. So it gave me an opportunity to go back and watch them and to go back and just uh, spend some time thinking about them. Uh, we had a lot of transition in this decade. I think yeah. much like the 19... I say the 1970s was very transitional for horror. And then, uh, yeah, I mean, 80s, you know, Slashers, King, 90s is uh, kind of a hodgepodge of a lot of different ideas. And meta starts to become a thing in the 90s. Uh, but I wouldn't say it was ex as experimental. So I think 70s was experimental. The 80s and 90s, uh, not, uh, not, you know, they were kind of coming into their own. The early 2000s. Uh, very much belong to, say, torture porn and the like with uh, with Saw and Hostel and other films that kind of fall into that same area. And so then I think the 2010s is experimenting again. Like, what, what direction we want to go? We have a lot of art house. Uh, we don't... We have a lot of remakes. Uh, we have reboots. And I think it's those... The art house, remake, reboots, and... Um, just we'll, and others, you know, make it experimental. And so I think mm -hmm. we're, it's kind of finding its foothold again. And I'm incredibly excited for what 2020 has in store. Uh, for instance, just off the top of my head, uh, 2020 that I'm looking forward to, which I really feel the 2010s have greatly helped to kind of usher in, are uh, the, the Turning, Invisible Man, The Lodge, Antlers, and of course, the Peace State Resistance, Halloween Kills, later on this year in October. <laughs> and so we have, um, and so though, so I, I feel like we've been playing around with the genre a lot in the 2010s, and now it's going to kind of come into its own again. So I'd say every 20 years or so, it seems to reinvent itself uh through experimenting with what we can do with the genre yeah a, a lot of the entries on my list are very back heavy of the decade like 2019 2018 2017 that sort of area and i don't know how much of that is due to just you know i saw more movies those years than i was seeing in the early 2010s but even going back and looking at some of the kind of the best horror films of the early 2010s i found that uh, there was a general increase in quality and uh, maybe uniqueness in some of the premise of these horror films uh, in the latter part of the decade. Do you agree with that? Oh, definitely. I approached my list a little differently. I started with one film representing each year because I find I, oh, okay. I, I see so many horror films that, to be honest, it's really difficult for me to think of them as... 10 years worth of films it's just uh i would like yeah. to be able to uh to to navigate all those a lot better unfortunately 
I have a difficult time doing that. So I need a bit more structure. So what I did for myself is I selected one film from each year. And then after I had those 10, I looked at those 10 and I picked out uh, the ones I felt were the best five of those. So you'll get a little, uh, you'll get a little of everything. We'll have uh, five different years represented in my list. And then I have, you know, a bunch of honorable mentions, which are, you know, mm -hmm. from, you know, from the different years. But that's how I did it because I, I'm very much a structure person. And so I needed that additional criteria to help me in navigating all these uh, great films to pick out the ones that, um, the five that stood out the most to me. Yeah, it's brutal to narrow down a whole decade yeah. into five <laughs> films. Uh <laughs> So this actually, I thought this one was actually going to be a little bit easier for me mm -hmm. um, because again, like I haven't seen that many horror films and there aren't as many that I absolutely love. But when I was finalizing my list, I was sort of like, oh man, I, I want that to be on there. And does that count of hor as horror? Yes, it does. I want that on the list, but I can't. And so I also have uh, quite a few honorable mentions. Nice. With that, Ryan, why don't you give us your number five horror film of the 2010s? Sure. My number five of the 2010s is It Chapter One from 2017. My grandfather thinks this town is cursed. That all the bad things that happen in this town are because of one thing. An evil thing. Georgie goes missing. Or one of us. Are you just gonna pretend it isn't happening like everyone else in this town? If we stick together, we win. Okay, so right off the bat, that is my actually, it's my number one. Oh, no. Okay, well, uh, uh, do you want to talk about it now or do you want to wait till we get to your uh, number one? And then... No, let's let's talk about it now. Go for okay, it. Okay, sure. Uh, what, I, what I love about It Chapter One, and, and sadly, I don't feel quite the same way about It Chapter Two, but uh, what I loved about It Agreed. Chapter One was it's just, it's... Uh, from the first scene to the last scene, it's just hauntingly fantastic. It is the return of the you know, excellently made King adaptation. Because, uh, uh, I mean, so much of King's work does get adapted. And, you know, largely the movies that are made of them, you know, most of them are not that great. I still love watching them. You know, they're not that great. This was kind of a return of that excellent adaptation that was nothing short of a masterpiece that really does both the original novel and TV miniseries back in the 90s justice. And, and it was so much fun to have those conversations like who's, you know, you know, which it is better, the, the 90s it, the 2017, or like which Pennywise do we like more? And I, I don't think there is an answer to that. It, in my opinion, 
uh, Tim Curry and Bill Skarsgård's uh, Pennywise's are very different from one another. Therefore, I think it's unfair to compare them. I think one is a bit mm -hmm. more terrifying. The other is a bit more playful. Both of which I think are so much a part of Pennywise. And so they are two different expressions of the same character. And so I, so I, you know, I'm certainly, uh, if you've seen both, I'd love to know which uh, Pennywise you like more if, if, uh, if that's the case. Um, but this was just a, it was a great cast, a great set. Uh, we have a lot of great King tropes. Uh, I think the, uh, setting it in the eighties versus the, I think the novel is like the, the backstory is set in the fifties or sixties, I want to say. So I like how we brought that up mm -hmm. into the eighties. And I think we have stranger things a lot to, to think for that. Uh, but you know, it's a great coming of age story. Uh, it's uh, very much a horror film artistically and for shock value. And we have a great nightmare inducing uh, exterior, but beneath that truly beats the heart of a heavy drama with a great message about growing up, friendship, teamwork, and facing one's fears. Yeah. So I actually haven't seen the original miniseries. Okay. I've only seen this one, but I agree with everything you said. I, obviously, it's my number one. I would say that this film is kind of my gateway drug into horror in the sense that it is horror, but it's also very much blockbuster popcorn. It's yeah. uh, it's fun. It's funny. It's thrilling. It's not terrifying, but there are scary moments. Mm -hmm. And I like that. I think it's really smart that they made it rated R. Uh, you know, it doesn't hold back. Kids die like a lot, uh, which is always kind of jarring. But yeah, everything about the film from a production design is fantastic, which is weird to me that It Chapter 2 feels much um, much messier because there's so much more money in that one. But everything in this film feels tight. And like you said, the production design is gorgeous. Pennywise looks amazing. I think the score is fantastic. That mm -hmm. Pennywise, I don't know if it's a theme song or whatever, but that like, I'm not going to. I'm not going to just make noises, but I almost want to. The, um, <laughs> but there's a very clear now Pennywise or It theme song. And I think that that's fantastic. And like you said, I think the kids are all great. I think they're interesting and you actually care about all of the kids. And the main thing that's interesting about this one compared to a lot of other horror films and just films in general that have kids is that these kids talk and they act like kids. Um, they bicker, they argue, they cuss. Um, so, yeah, I think this movie's fantastic. Yeah, they, uh, the, the kids are so much fun to watch. Uh, and they do, they just feel, they just feel, they feel like real kids. They feel like real kids who have known each other a long time. And they, they're not all best friends. They just kind of know each other. And, like, through the conflicts experienced in the movie, they do become closer and uh, it's, I think, it's a great depiction of how friendship and growing up is so incredibly complicated. And the other thing that I want to point out is that this film is actually pretty weird for a blockbuster. I, I think a lot of that comes from Bill Skarsgård's performance where he's just really bizarre. And he, you know, he does all these body contours and things with his eyes and it, it gives that the film that disturbing sense that yes. makes it feel very much like a horror film without necessarily being um, perverse or, you know, gory or anything like that, even though there are moments that are gory <laughs> and perverse, depending on how you look at it. Um, but what I really also like is that 
the film just doesn't take itself that seriously. It knows it's a killer clown. Mm-hmm. You know, it knows that that's objectively a little goofy. And so they have fun with that too. And I'm sure you've seen the memes of like Pennywise dancing and everything. But oh, yes. so it's, it's funny, but it's also um, like terrifying in sort of a roller coaster kind of way, as opposed to a, uh, a dreadful kind of way. <laughs> yeah, I like, I like how you put that there. I think that encapsulates it very nicely. Yeah. So is this your favorite Stephen King adaptation? I know that's probably a loaded question, but Oh, no, no, no. I it's a question I I I've been asked several times before. Uh it's uh it I I usually I give two responses, and it's not because I'm purposely want to be wishy-washy or to not take a stand. It's because well, I'll explain. So my two my two favorite uh adaptations are uh The Shining and uh, misery. Those are my two favorites. Uh, and I select two because it's 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 well known that Stanley Kubrick's The Shining is not a direct adaptation of The Shining. There is it is heavily inspired by The Shining, but uh, the movie you know is very different from the book. Hence why King didn't like it. Uh, but I do think it is still it's still my pick for the most. Um, in terms of uh, horror masterpieces uh, out of King, I'd say it, it is the best one. I think it is the one that is uh, held in the uh, highest regard. It, uh, it typifies both the art of visual storytelling and uh, having those you know, just utterly terrifying, nightmare-inducing moments. And it's such a part of the zeitgeist. I mean, who doesn't know, right. you know where Here's Johnny uh, is from? I mean, and aside from the uh, Johnny Carson show. And so and, and even if you haven't seen The Shining, you you know where it's from. And so it has found its way into pop culture and our lives the way I don't think any other has. And so so that's why one of my picks is The Shining. Uh, the other one is Misery. Now, Misery is more or less a direct adaptation. Uh, it's also uh, award-winning. It won... Uh, 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 Kathy Bates won her first Oscar. Yeah. For Misery, uh, her portrayal of Annie Wilkes, uh, that one is, uh, it was directed by Rob Reiner, but it, it screams of Hitchcock in many different ways. You could remove Rob Reiner's name and slap Hitchcock's name on it, and you would believe it, because Rob Reiner yeah. shot it in, in a very Hitchcock manner. Brian, uh, uh, Brian De Palma also emulates uh, Hitchcock a lot, uh, famously as well. I, I love it because it's faithful to the book, and it's so scary. It takes place in one room, or at least most of the time, 80, 85% yeah. of the time, we're just in that bedroom, and yet we never feel, uh, like, we don't feel trapped in a in a negative way. Like, it, we, we're so just engrossed in what's happening, and we're just, and we're loving these moments that we forget that we spend 80, 85% of this movie in one room. And I mean, who doesn't uh, still feel their ankles hurt when you just hear the name Annie Wilkes or when yep. somebody <laughs> says, I'm your biggest fan. I show that scene to my class every semester, the hobbling scene, and uh, they, the entire class agrees that it is one of, like either the most terrifying or among the most terrifying scenes they have ever seen in a film. And so that, that's why, you know, Misery is my other pick. So one for... I say more artistic expression as, and then the other for faithful adaptation. So, uh, so that's why my answers are both uh, the shining and misery. Excellent. So uh, have you read the novel it? <laughs> I, 
I have not. I uh, okay. <laughs> I must confess, I'm not much of a bibliophile. I, I don't spend a lot of time reading. I read a lot of screenplays. And I'll read yeah. coffee table books with a film. I've got a, a Hitchcock one I got for my birthday. And then I got another one about fantasy and sci-fi uh, earlier in the year. And so I'll read coffee table books like that. But I'm not too much of a novel reader. So I, uh, so I sometimes can't engage as much as some of the discussions as I would like when comparing to the book. But as I always tell people, uh, you can't compare a movie and a book. Now, granted, yeah, there are yeah. some just bad adaptations, but there are other adaptations that aren't bad. There's just some things in books you cannot possibly show on screen. And so it is up to the director and or writer to come up with how can we visually show this when in the book it's all internally driven, psychological, and it's like, well, film's visual medium. We ha It has to translate visually. And, you know, sometimes... You know, there's an excellent, you know, at, you know, uh, kind of a, a translation. You know, other times there isn't. So I, I try not to get lost in that argument. But it would be nice to engage a little bit more. And I only have myself to blame because I'm not that much of a reader. Well, to be fair, the book is like 800 pages. So <laughs> whatever. <laughs> I haven't read it either. So I was just curious whether that, you, you know, whether it is a good adaptation or a bad adaptation. I've heard both and especially... Uh, the things that seem to not really work for me in it chapter two are more directly taken from the novel. So yeah. I'm not sure how great of a strict adaptation the original one is to the actual book. But yeah. it, regardless, is uh, Ryan's number five and it is my number one. So my number five is a film that we just briefly talked about on uh, Twitter earlier today. It is Ready or Not from 2019. <laughs> nice it's not on my list but it, it was going to be in my honorable mentions loved ready or not i showed it to my sister and brother-in-law over christmas break and they thought it was so much fun and anybody that has watched this movie just just praises it so much i mean august is one of those movie graveyards kind of like january typically and yet we had some great right. movies in august including this one and it was, I loved how original it was. I love the characters. Samara Weaving, man, what a performance. It was so much, it was fun. She's a badass, but she's still vulnerable at the same time. And so she is just such a, a wonderful, fun character to watch. Uh, she's strong and funny and resourceful and, and, just everything she faced was like you almost it's like you can't make this stuff up almost uh, i mean somebody did it's <laughs> i i just i can't say enough great things about ready or not yeah so i actually didn't see this in august for some reason i was i saw it and i was like uh i don't need to see that it doesn't look <laughs> that good something like that and then i actually just watched it yesterday uh, I had a flight back to boston from minneapolis and it was one of the ones on the Delta Airlines flight, which apparently, you know, Delta has amazing movie selection. I didn't know that. Um, but Ready or Not was on there. So I did watch it on a tiny little screen and <laughs> it was by myself. But yeah, I mean, this movie is fantastic. I would say it's batshit. The energy yes. that it has is bonkers. Unlike, it's just, yeah, <laughs> it really is. <laughs> the energy is unlike anything I've ever seen. 
I like that the tone that it's going for is it's not exactly comedy Mm-mm. because Samara Weaving plays her character pretty straight, mm-hmm. but it does have this acceptance of how ridiculous everything is. And especially at the end, I don't want to, I don't think too many people saw it, so I don't want to give away the ending, but especially the end, it just goes for it. <laughs> Best last line all year bar none it has the (laughs) best closing line out of any movie that i saw all year and i just it sums up everything and so and i i tell my students in in my screenwriting class you know save the best for last and so then we we spend a day talking well part of a lesson talking about you know movies closing lines and scenes and so and this is one uh, I can't wait till I can get some video clips off of YouTube uh, from it so I can put it in my presentation. Uh, but it's that line. It's just like, that is it. I Her delivery of that line, just what she says, it was just like, best way to end the movie ever. And is definitely the line that sticks out to me the most out of you know anything that I saw this last year. And it's one of those lines that if it was at the end of a worse movie, then it would be cheap and a little schlocky. But in this, it just nails that perfect tone of this is ridiculous and crazy things are happening. You know, none of it really makes sense. And it's not, you know, what I would call believable. Mm -hmm. But everybody in the film, the actors and the directors and the producers, whatever, they all just kind of collectively decided to just go with the premise and then they just had fun with it. So the first 30 minutes are just kind of building up to this thing. And then once that thing happens, which is obviously, you know, the um, like premise of the movie, the premise of the movie for people who don't know is that essentially Samara Weaving's character is married into a family and she has to play a game of hide and seek where they essentially try to kill her. (laughs) Um, And, you know, they just have a blast with that premise. And it, it was just, so fun it's a fantastic screenplay cast direction quite literally everything works flawlessly and it was certainly the most fun to be had at the movies this past summer because we had like a really great spring didn't really have a great you know early and midsummer so this was a uh yeah a great it was like most fun you're gonna have there and and I feel that it is going to be a uh, future cult classic. Uh, it's yeah. It's got campy dialogue and gruesome kills, but to your point, it's never a parody of itself. If anything, it's a, it's a satire of the upper class, but it never falls into parody. And I I like how it it struck that balance because it didn't feel like an out and out comedy. Uh, much like of uh, what am uh well an honorable mention I have, which is, uh, it, it's a, co- it's a comedy, but it's the characters take themselves seriously. And I think those are sometimes the best horror comedies are the ones in which the characters take themselves seriously, but everything going on around them is just so utterly ridiculous. It, in that way, it reminds me a lot of knives out. If knives out was less of a murder mystery yes. and more of a, uh, horror film. Uh, so it kind of has that same energy of all the characters are, kind of kooky and crazy but they're also very grounded and yeah. they are committed to what they're doing they they know it's ridiculous but they don't you know there's still consequences to the actions and everything so exactly it was it was great i want to say that i thought the sister's husband was absolutely hilarious he's 
clearly only kind of into it and he's just going along with all the weird bullshit that the family does because he can be rich and fancy so everything that came out of his mouth was great yeah samara weaving um she got i don't know if it's her start but the first movie that i saw her in uh was actually on netflix last year the babysitter i don't know if you're familiar with it it was direct to Netflix. Great, yeah. great horror movie. And that's the very first movie that I saw her in. I didn't recognize her at first, but after I saw the movie and went back, I'm like, oh, you're the girl from uh, The Babysitter. <laughs> and I love The Babysitter. So she, if I was asked on Twitter, or I wasn't asked, it was uh, somebody posted uh, breakout stars over 2019. And a lot of people are saying, you know, Florence Pugh. And, and and in all fairness, right. she is she is a name that you know most people didn't know of at the beginning of the year, but after Midsummer and Little Women, everybody's talking about her now. But I think you know, in terms of like breakout role, uh, that just like just just rocketed uh, an an actress forward. Samara Weaving was actually my pick. She was she just knocked it out of the park, and she just uh, like to me the the best breakout role. Uh, even though the babysitter, I think, was 2018, but like in terms of like big blockbusters, you know, uh, movies mm-hmm. at the at the theater, breakout role, uh, my favorite for 2019, it belongs to Samara Weaving. Yeah, she's got that same kind of MS. It was she's almost like a mix, at least look wise and sort of personality wise, between Emma Stone and Margot Robbie. Yes, like she, I can see that. Yeah, at first I thought it was Margot Robbie on the poster, and I was like, "Oh, cool." A lot of but, people did. A lot of people thought that it was Margot Robbie on the on the on the poster, and uh, and I ne- I never thought about uh, comparing Samara Weaving to uh, to also Emma Stone, but I think you're right. I'd say you know she is very much an Emma Stone meets Margot Robbie type. Yeah, <laughs> so Samara Weaving is in Ready or Not from 2019. That is my number five. Uh, Ryan, what is your number four film? Uh, my number four film is one that not a lot of people know about, uh, but it's one that really sticks out in my mind and has a very interesting story in terms of how it came to theaters. Uh, it is The Black Coat's Daughter. Okay, I haven't heard of this. Sure. I love uh, love everything about Black Coat's Daughter. Uh, from, from beginning to end, the atmosphere is dismal and ominous. And that gives way to the bloody horror that unfolds later on in the movie. It is seductively slow, uh, but the pacing draws you in moment by moment to this very much unsettling world. Um, If I could liken this film to one that more people are familiar with, I liken it to Rosemary's Baby. Because the horror is very much implied and atmospheric, more so than gimmicky or tropey. If you love gothic horror... This is a movie you should put on your list. It's very much a gothic uh, gothic horror movie. Uh, it delivers this mesmerizing story that um, uh, also delivers these frightening moments and imagery that is very much uh, A24. In fact, I, uh, I should have gone back and looked. I can't remember if Black Coat's Daughter is A24 or not. I think it may be. Yeah, it is. I'm, I'm checking it right You're now. You're looking at okay, A24. So it's, a, it's A24. It's one of the earliest ones. Uh, I don't know if it was their first one. Wow. Very early on for, for A24, the Black Coat's Daughter. And uh, it's also something else that's really cool about the Black Coat's Daughter is it is directed by the son of legend Anthony Perkins. And so his son directed this movie. Uh, you have muted performances by our two lead actresses, but 
uh, both the performances, outstanding achievement, and there's a lot of power in their restrained delivery of these subtext-rich lines. And uh, I guess you have it pulled up there. Um, I believe it's uh, Emma Roberts is one of the actresses, but I'm, I'm not remembering who the other one is. It's uh, Kiernan Shipka, that, I think. That's it. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, and we and we know Emma Roberts, uh, not only uh, from, you know, uh, I mean, she's in Blacklist Daughter, but I think a lot of people associate her with American Horror Story. So you get a yeah, lot of her Scream there. Queens. And uh, Scream Queens and uh, Scream 4, I believe. Uh, I think oh, okay. Emma Roberts is in that. So uh, so she's very much a she's she's a rising horror queen. And so, yeah, so the <laughs> so Black Code's daughter is uh, my my number four. Awesome. Well, I haven't really heard about this film at all. It seems really interesting, though. And I mean, I will definitely check this one out. And it looks like it's on um, Netflix. Yeah. Correct? Oh, it is. Uh, speaking of distribution, that's what I that's what I forgot. I, 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 I forgot to mention uh, it w- did not premiere in movie theaters at first. It was uh, direct to direct TV cinema in February 2015. Uh, wow. But it it got such a uh, got rave reviews that it then went from just a direct TV cinema exclusive to the theater, and it was only a one or two night event where you could catch it in the theater. It only it was just I think it was one weekend, and uh, the original title of the movie was February. When I saw when I first saw trailers for it. It was called February, and then I stumbled across Black Coat's Daughter, and I made the connection, oh, your title changed, you were what was called February, and yes, you are the movie that I saw on DirecTV Cinema, but now it got a theatrical <laughs> release. So it, it it was very interesting how um, how it came, uh, uh, where people came to find it. You either found it very early on DirecTV, or perhaps you discovered it when it did get its theatrical release later on that year. So the black coat's daughter is Ryan's number four from 2015. Yeah, 2017, depending on when you saw it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So my number four is It Follows from 2014. I used to daydream about being old enough to go on dates. I had this image of myself holding hands with a really cute guy, driving along some pretty road. It's never about going anywhere, really. It's having some sort of freedom, I guess. Okay. You awake? What are you doing? You're not going to believe me. And I need you to remember what I'm saying. This thing, it's going to follow you. Somebody gave it to me. And I passed it to you. Wherever you are, it's somewhere walking straight for you. All you can do is pass it along to someone else. So this is another film that I saw very recently, I think about a week or so ago. And, you know, it's one of those ones that I picked up on a Black Friday, you know, years ago and never got around to watching. And this was the perfect opportunity to watch it. And I thought it was really, really good. It is an excellent execution of a very simple monster concept and i really love when a film can just craft something that's so easily understandable and clearly has defined rules and powers and then you just watch that kind of unfold in the movie 
And it makes it so that for me, the my favorite part of It Follows was thinking about the implications of, you know, living in that world with that monster and how you would survive the monster. And I think it's always really fun when a film can do that. So that was one of the main things that I loved about this movie. Yeah, uh, It Follows. I It, it, it has a, a huge fan base. A lot of film Twitter loves this movie. I gotta say, I'm not one of them. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't not like it. I just, for the same reason that I've been campaigning against Parasite for any big wins, it's not because I don't like the movie Parasite. Well, I don't really like the movie Parasite. It's not because I don't, <laughs> it's not because I don't think it's a bad film. I don't like how it has been oversold over and mm. over and yeah. over and over. And I think that is also how I feel about It Follows. I feel that it was good, but it was so oversold in film Twitter that I grew to not like it a lot uh, be- because it was like, this is not the greatest horror movie ever, but yet you're, the conversations you're having are treating it like it's one of the greatest movies of all time. And it, it, it just it simply isn't. Right, it is the fourth of the 2010s. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, but uh, when I, you know, what I liked about it was the uh, I love the cinematography, I love the lighting and the atmosphere. Yeah. Like it, that was it was um, it was haunting. Uh, I think you know many people do read it as a commentary on STDs, even though the director you know has come out and said this is not about STDs at all. Like, uh, and everybody else's jaws just drop because it's like oh, this I is- didn't know that. That's bullshit. Oh, you didn't know that. That's how a lot of people have read it because oh, of- oh no, I didn't know that the director said that that's not what it's about because that's exactly how I read oh, it. Okay, yeah, but no, the director said no, it is not an allegory on STDs. I'm like, it's like bullshit. It's like this is this is the, there's, you cannot tell me that that did not thought did not come across uh, your mind at all. Uh, yeah. But uh, it does. It's got a it's got a, a great message. It's one that uh, when it came out. Didn't score that high on IMDb, Rotten Tomatoes, and Metacritic, but the longer it was out, you actually saw its score go up, which is really interesting because so often a movie will start out high and then, you know, while it's been out for over a few weeks, you'll see that score tick down. Well, it was the opposite. Its score uh, went up. And um, and although the acting is, I feel, less than adequate and the plot is over the top at times, I, I do mm-hmm. think the allegorical message is well written and to this what we'll call young adult suspense thriller because it came out during those big YA years. Part of the 2010s was very much a YA uh, kind of centric uh, decade. And so this kind of felt like a YA suspense thriller to me. Yeah, I will say one of the main criticisms I have of the film is that it's very, very quiet. Um, there's not a lot of dialogue. So, it, you know, it feels almost in a way the exact opposite of something like Ready or Not, where, you know, there's so much energy in that film. This film feels slow and lethargic and a little depressing. So, you know, maybe that's part of the reason why it doesn't work for some people. Um I guess the thing that I really liked about it is that it has that looming sense of dread the entire time where you're you're almost waiting for a jump scare to happen so that, you know, you can get that release, that sense of release or whatever um, that comes after a jump scare. But there really aren't any jump scares in this. There actually aren't 
really any scary moments except for maybe you know one or two of them Mm -hmm. and in that emptiness there's just this like dreadful fear that we know that the monster is always coming closer like regardless of what you do the monster is moving towards you so i think that relentlessness is you know it's not a film that i would want to pop on on a friday and watch with some friends eating popcorn or whatever but it definitely is a film that i think really affected me and so it follows is my number four from 2014 good choice all right ryan what's your number three film uh, my number three film comes at us from 2018, and that is David Gordon Green's Halloween. I right. cried, like like legit. I had tears in my eyes the very moment that we go from the prologue to the smash cut where we get the black screen and the pumpkin reassembling itself with the iconic uh, theme music. And I had tears in my eyes when that happened. There was... And such an incredible amount of energy in that room that it was unlike anything I really feel I'd ever experienced before at the theater. These are these are horror fans. These are just movie fans. These are just like so many people all gathered in one place to watch one of the most iconic villains. Even though Freddy is my favorite, but watching one of the most iconic <laughs> villains from horror hit the big screen again, and, and I did. I, I had these happy tears just streaming down my face uh, during that, the whole, that just that moment. I, I, I loved everything about uh, Halloween. Yeah, that's awesome. That reminds me a lot of sort of how I felt, you know, during Avengers Endgame, for example. <laughs> so that's, you know, I mean, I haven't seen any of the Halloween movies. This is a film that I did get on Blu-ray, um, or like 4K or whatever you call it on Black Friday. So it is sitting on my shelf and I need to watch it. It was another one of those ones that I didn't find the time to watch. But yeah, it's awesome that uh, it like lives up to the legacy and everything like that. Is that correct? Oh, very much so. This is the sequel that we've been waiting for for a long time. Uh, now, although it does retcon a lot of like everything except for the first one, um, I am a fan of Halloween H2O. From uh, from 1998, I I, I like right, it. Right, we talked about that. Yes. Yeah. Oh, we, we that's right. We have talked about it. So I had hoped that it had been considered part of the I guess quote new canon that we're going from, you know. But it isn't. But other mm-hmm. than H2O, we've been waiting for a great sequel. I, I in fact, my you know, my favorite Halloween uh, is the original, uh, followed by 2018, then H2O, then, you know, Halloween 2, and so on and so forth. So this is definitely a sequel that we've been waiting for. And uh, uh, he, uh, David Gordon Green, you know, he directs a Halloween movie that works as both an homage to the original while crafting an original story that is, you know, really more than just a great horror film. It's a great film, period. And, you know, suffice it to say, he delivered in spades, or knives, as it were. This is Michael. Uh, you know, <laughs> words can't even begin to truly capture that energy I was speaking of in the auditorium last year. I mean, I still I still can't come up with words to really describe it, other than just not being anything like, you know, I've experienced before. We've got echoes of the original, and a little Halloween, too, and there's some H2O in there, even though they're officially you know, not part of the storyline. It provides longtime fans and those newly discovering this franchise with an original story that's going to hook you from the very moment uh, uh, from the very moment it begins and then the the first Michael kill just tells us that all bets are off nobody is safe it's thrilling engaging and fun 
Um, and the, the uh, you know, it's one that is all, I kind of feels like required uh, watching uh, for horror fans. And I'm uh, <laughs> just, uh, you know, even now I'm more excited for uh, Halloween Kills coming up. I, uh, I'm interviewing for a position uh, in Charleston, as you know, I asked you for a, a letter of recommendation uh, last week. And what's cool about yeah. this is, um, you know, uh, if I get it, and that's a big if, I mean, n- nothing, nothing's final, but if I were to get it, one of the things I'm going to do as soon as I move to Charleston is go around and taking pictures at all the locations because David Gordon Green's Halloween, Halloween Kills, and Halloween Ends are all shot in Charleston. So, yes. So I'm uh, so if I do end up moving, I plan on taking a picture outside of all the locations that I can identify (laughs) from the movie. And uh, even if I don't get the job, just I need to uh, when I'm because my family lives in South Carolina. So next time I'm I'm visiting and I have some time, I just got to go. I just need to go down to Charleston and just find all the locations from the movie and take pictures uh, because uh, because oh my gosh, that'd be really cool. You the uh, you know to live where um, the uh, new Halloween movies were shot. I I love that kind of thing. Some people are listening, probably like, oh, that just that just seems a little uh, silly. But no, I I, <laughs> I love doing that kind of stuff. Now I'm a sucker for that stuff too. <laughs> so does Halloween set up like the potential for a franchise going forward? Does it end on some sort of cliffhanger or something? Um. Yes and no. It the Halloween kills and Halloween ends were not greenlit uh, when the, uh, when this was uh, right, when this yeah. was put out. If I remember correctly, from 2018, while it was still in theaters, um, and it, and it hung out in theaters for a long time, uh, while it was hanging out in theaters, I believe Universal did greenlight the uh the sequel and the and the third installment that we're going to get but it wasn't that way in the beginning so i think a lot of it was uh just due to how this movie was received so the way it Mm -hmm. ends because obviously you don't know you're getting a sequel even though maybe you hope you are um it ends on a shot that 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 closes up the movie it's a great ending however you can see where it does kind of point to you know, a possible sequel. So it was, it's not, and I think that's great that it was not written with a sequel in mind. It was written and ended that there could, could, that there's a possibility of a sequel, but we're not left with, um, kind of an ending that it's like, Oh, that didn't, I mean, it set us up for the next one, but I don't really like the ending. I'm glad it has a solid ending. It just so happens to be an ending that yes, it does point to a, possible future for the franchise and you know thankfully uh you know we uh we got those next two movies greenlit awesome so halloween from 2018 is ryan's number three and i will definitely make sure to check that one out before halloween kills and maybe we can have a conversation about that one. Oh, definitely <laughs> um okay so my number three is a film that was the debut of Ryan Terry on the podcast. My number three is Midsummer from earlier this year. Or I guess, wow, it's 2020 already. <laughs> from 2019. <laughs> so I think, you know, at the time that we reviewed this, I was a bit ambivalent on the film. Uh, I didn't know how much I liked it, but I did know that there was something special about it. Mm-hmm. And I thought that, you know, I, I've said before that the Midsummer episode is one of the the 
episodes that I've made that I've been really, really proud of because I think we have a really interesting conversation and really dig into that, uh, the film and deconstructing a lot of the more confusing parts of that film. And the more time that has gone on, the more I really appreciate what that film does. And I think it's incredibly effective at being a slow burn of a film. I think obviously, you know, as we talked about, Florence Pugh is an up and comer and this film performance is astounding. But above that, you know, I think the set design and the location just feels unique for a horror film. You know, there's so much light and bright colors in the film that kind of really contradict what you expect to see in a horror film. And it almost makes it more terrifying that there aren't shadows and that there isn't a whole lot, you know, going on that's scary or anything like that. But um, I mean, I know we've, you know, we did a whole almost two hour discussion about this film. So I will keep this brief. Um, but, you know, it just tells a great story about a toxic relationship and the process of grief. Um, but the film still makes sure to be entertaining and funny and uh, gory. So I, yeah, you know, I really love Midsummer, and I haven't seen it again, but I am actually really excited to check this one out again. Ryan, have you seen this since we last talked about it? Uh, I have not. I would like to watch the director's cut, which adds in, I want to say, 20, 30 minutes uh, more footage. I don't know how many scenes that equates to. It may just be extensions of scenes. But there's about 20 to 30 minutes, uh, if I remember correctly, that was added to it. So I'd really like to see the director's cut. I love the conversation that we had over Midsummer. So listeners, uh, if you want to go into a deep dive on this movie, totally check out that episode because uh, it was uh, it was a lot of fun and there's so much to talk about. I love yeah. how artful this is. Uh, it really typifies that inscription around Leo the Lion and MGM's logo, Ars Gratia Artis, art for art's sake. It uh, has a high level of artistic integrity and it's an excellent companion piece to Hereditary. I do, and I think I mentioned this on our deep dive. I like Hereditary a little bit more, but I but I really like both of these. But they're excellent bookends for one another. They they uh, the great companion pieces, and it's uh, it's one that I think when I do go back and watch, I'm going to pick up on more stuff. So I'm I'm looking forward to what I'm going to be able to find. I love how visually driven everything is uh, in Midsummer, and how it is terrifying. Yet it takes place all during the day, and yeah. uh, and you and you've commented on that already. And I think that's a, definitely a, a big takeaway from this movie. Um, some people, you know, uh, have described it, and to an extent, I I have as well described it as as a, a long acid trip. Uh, and there's certainly uh, <laughs> certainly that element in there as well. I think it's it's much more than that. However, th- there there are moments that re- that do truly feel trippy. Um, and from edibles to cocktails, you know we uh, you know we have it all. But it's it's uh, not just a trippy experience. It's a cinematic experience. You know, unlike any other I'd ever witnessed on the big screen. Um, uh, where I take uh, like a negative critique of the film and where I take issue, um, I do feel the plot isn't terribly compelling. And that is a big deal. However, everything else is just so good that I'm almost willing to forgive it uh, for uh, for that plot because I do treat it as more of, say, a work of art in a museum uh, because there's mm-hmm. there's so there's so much to love about it in that respect. 
And, um, and yeah, we, we interpret it differently, but that allows us to all contribute to the conversation and it gives that added dimension, you know, that doesn't always come with movies. Yeah, that's perfectly fair. So definitely check out our huge long talk about it. It's awesome. Uh, I, I really think that if people have seen this movie and they want a little bit of clarity on it, I think that episode is fantastic. Midsummer is my number three from 2019. So that gets us to Ryan's number two. My number two is 2019's Dr. Sleep. When I was a kid, there was a place. A dark place. They closed it down and let it rot. But the things that lived there... the bus this far north you're running away from something <gasps> I'm running away from myself I guess hi you can hear me you're magic like me I don't know about magic I always called it the shining place yeah i knew this would be on here and i wanted to see it so i could talk about it shit i am sorry <laughs> no, I, mean, I i think some theaters still have it but it's probably getting pretty close to the, where most of them don't have it anymore and it's that kind of that that time in which it'll be on demand before you know it uh yeah. but i i loved everything about dr sleep uh mike flanagan set out to do the impossible he was challenged with having to you know make a movie that was both an adaptation of the stephen king novel dr sleep but it also had to be a direct sequel to stanley kubrick's the shining which i mentioned earlier being uh you know my, my one one of two favorite adaptations of king's and that that was a nearly impossible task. If you had asked me if anybody could come in and do that, I I, I would say I, I don't know any living director who could who could do that because that's just because King hated the movie. So how do you how do you adapt a novel that King uh, will like? Because you can't have them not like both adaptations, and but you have to satisfy the fans of the original because the original is a masterpiece. Granted, King doesn't like it, but most everybody else does. So how, how do you do that? It's just nearly impossible. But what he delivered to us uh, this past fall utterly blew my mind. Um, this is a sequel which does not have to justify its own existence like uh, like many sequels have to and those that have to justify their experience often you know fail to live up to the magic of the original but flanagan defies the fate that so often befalls those sequels and he delivers a compelling film worthy to be connected to kubrick's cinematic masterpiece and and while that specter of kubrick is lurking in the background and uh, the foreground story does take place on the backdrop of the infamous Overlook Hotel, complete with the presence of Jack Torrance, I might add. This is oh, wow. a completely new story. 
Uh, it's a bridge between the literary and cinematic worlds. You know, Dr. Sleep takes us to some extremely dark places. There's some very disturbing moments in here. And I'm not talking gory. This is not a gory movie, but there are some very disturbing moments. Uh, it's a no hards barred approach that will surely get under your skin and cause you to cringe at the vile actions that you see on screen. And we have a phenomenal villain in Rose the Hat. I love Rose the Hat. I love her look. Uh, we are definitely going to get uh, costumes of uh, of Rose the Hat uh, coming up here, I swear, around <laughs> uh, the uh, the upcoming Halloween. And Rebecca Ferguson is a uh, just a treasure to watch and a great villain. I, I love having great villains in horror. Uh, of all the subgenres in horror, slasher is my favorite, and that usually comes with great villains. And so this isn't a slasher, but we have a great villain. And, um, and just at the end of the day... Uh, there's just something irresistible about returning to the Overlook Hotel. So how do you feel about Ewan McGregor's performance as Danny Torrance? I know there's always a bit of hesitation to have a character that was well-known by one actor kind of mm -hmm. be completely taken over by another. Did you feel like there was a good um, kind of symbiosis between those two performances? Oh, I, I thought he, he did the character justice. I, I totally bought him as Danny. And he, okay. uh, and it's not just his look. I mean, although, I mean, it's, it's hard to know what Danny, it would look like, you know, right, 30 years <laughs> later or whatever. So, um, so, but his mannerisms, uh, how he interacts, uh, uh, with, um, with the characters around him, he very much has the soul of our original Danny and so I, I totally, I, I buy him. I buy all these characters. I don't, I don't feel any of them stick out as just not believable. I believe all these characters. I like watching all of them. They're, uh, you know, the decisions they make feel real within the world, you know, the, uh, in which they live. And he, uh, he did the, uh, he, it was great. Trying to, is it an Oscar winning performance? No, but you know, this, you know, this isn't typically yeah. <laughs> the kind of movie where it's not that horror can't have Oscar winning performances. It certainly has. But I wasn't looking to this to be a Ewan McGregor Oscar performance, but I was looking for it to be a worthy performance of the character and of the property, and, and I feel very much that it was. Awesome. So Ryan's number two is Dr. Sleep from 2019. My number two, speaking of Oscar-worthy horror performances, is 2017's Get Out. Oh, so good. Yeah, so this film is, I mean... Okay, let's start. So for the first the first time I saw this, I thought this was fine. Um, but I went and did a rewatch of it earlier, you know, I keep saying earlier this year, but last year, I guess, before watching Us. And I, you know, I found myself just absolutely loving this film. And I think one of the main reasons for that is a reason that I like It Follows is that this film is just so clever and well-constructed and it's another example of sticking to a pretty simple premise and then just kind of working backwards to construct this film where everything in it is completely purposeful. Peel gives you all the information you need to figure out what's happening, but just enough so that it isn't obvious and that, you know, there's still a sense of reveal. But I think this is a fantastic script. Obviously, it won the Academy Award for and Best Adapted or maybe Original Screenplay. You know, 
watching this a second time I thought was really special because everything in the film has a second meaning when you know what's going to happen. And it was amazing to me how clear and complete it feels after knowing what's going on that you can go back and say, okay, well, that's what this means. And, oh, that's why that lady's acting weird. And there weren't any of those things where if you think about it, you know, the whole thing falls apart. There's no... um I mean, you know, every movie has plot holes, but there's no, wait, what about that thing? Why does that not make sense? At least to me in this film. So, yeah, I absolutely love Get Out. Uh, it truly is the the epitome of uh, how great the American horror film uh, can be. Is yeah, both not true. only a great horror film, but also a great film, period. Uh, much like you know, I said about uh, Halloween earlier, Get Out, very much, uh, very much the same. Uh, yeah, everything about it is outstanding. Uh, it's, uh, I think this typifies how the American horror film, in my opinion, is the best genre for creatively commenting on the various social, economic, and psychological constructs of life in such a way that mm -hmm. it's True. visually thought-provoking. Uh, the best part about this film is that Peel does not pull out any of the usual horror tropes or cliches until the showdown. And so, uh, you know, but, and so you, you go into it, some people may go into it thinking, oh, that's a bait and switch. Well, no, cause you're just, everything is just so craftily set up that it sucks you into this world. And it's every bit as much of a horror film as it's more traditional counterparts, um, and so in terms of its contribution to the library of horror films, the, the movie's flawless from the writing to the directing, acting, and, and the score, editing, cinematography, everything about it is great. Uh, it's not on my list, but certainly one that I recommend for people to watch. Um, I'm not as big of a fan of Us. I like Get Out a lot more than Us. And so I, I'm hoping that Peel gets back to what he gave me in Get Out, uh, not so much what he gave me in Us. And so we'll just have to wait until his uh, next one antebellum which is coming out which is another one i'm looking forward to in 2020 i think is produced by peel but i don't think he's the writer or the director on it so we'll uh so we'll see what we're going to get with antebellum uh but i i really like get out and i'm so glad that it did as well as it did during uh award season which would have been the 2018 yeah. oscars yeah i agree with you i thought us was fine but it did feel like it was trying to do a lot more things and as a result um you know it didn't fully do one thing perfectly whereas i think get out is very purposeful and focused in you know doing one specific thing and it does it with a plum and everything about it is just pitch perfect <laughs> Uh, the one line that I always think about, and it's, you know, not just because it's been memed to death, but also because, um, it is just such a good line is when Bradley Whitford's character says, I would have voted for Obama a third time. <laughs> and it is hilarious, but it is sickening, sickeningly hilarious. You know, it's yeah. one of those things that just feels like Peel has the pulse on society with that line. Like, eh, man, it's just that single <laughs> line. Yeah, gets gets what this whole movie is about, and yeah. I think it's fantastic. It, so it is. Yeah, Get Out is my number two film, and uh, my number one, as a reminder, was It. So Ryan, your number one film is the last film that we'll be talking about. Can I guess what it is? Uh, yeah, I'll give you I'll give you a couple of guesses. So, um, so uh, so you've uh, in preparation for the show, I know you've looked at the horror films over the last decade, so you've definitely come across the title. 
Um, but yeah, uh, do you have two or three guesses what you think it may be? I just have one. Is it okay. Scream 4? It is. It is yes. Scream 4. <laughs> Robert's residence. Welcome home, Sydney. You're a survivor, aren't you, Sydney? What good's it to be a survivor if everyone close to you is dead? You can't save them. All you can do is watch. <laughs> Modern audiences have become savvy to the rules of the originals. Uh, I mean, there are still rules, but the rules have changed. And the kill has got to be, like, way more extreme. <laughs> the unexpected is the new cliché. And virgins can die now. <laughs> to be the new version, you know, 2.0, the killer should be filming the murders. Yeah, it's a natural next step in psycho slasher innovation. Go ahead if you have the guts. Well, it's time for someone new to die. These aren't just random killings. So how did you guess, first of all? Uh, well, so, I mean, obviously I, I read your um, your list about the top 10 films of uh you know the top 10 horror films of the decade and i will provide that in the a link to that in the show notes it's it's a great blog post um obviously i know that you're a huge fan of the scream films because we talked to the talked about that at length and i remember in that discussion you saying that you really loved scream 4 so just went for it <laughs> you did and it's uh it's the last film by Wes craven he would pass away a couple of years uh or ne- or that next year he either passed away in 12 or 13 so this this is the last film by Wes Craven, and so I love how uh, Wes Craven is back. You know, Scream was asleep for a long time. Uh, Scream three was uh, the early two thousands, I want to say. So we had a long yeah. stretch uh, by the time we got to Scream four, and everything about it is got it's got Wes Craven, you know, all over this. Scream four is the ultimate payoff to all the groundwork groundwork laid out in the first film and the the subsequent two sequels. And although this film could not exist without its predecessors in the same way, it does still manage to elevate the concepts that it's built upon uh, while, you know, delivering us a fun, uh, fun horror story that just does all the things that we love about slashers and subverts things that we love about them. And I, I don't, I, when I say elevate concepts, I don't want that to be confused with elevating the genre because this genre has always been quote elevated. It doesn't need to be <laughs> it doesn't need to be elevated. It's always been pioneering and forward thinking its entire existence. Um, but the, the the final act is one of the most satisfying and surprising endings in modern horror history. It's dripping with savage social commentary about the links that people will go to be famous. And, and that is very much in our social media centric society now. We're all obsessed with this idea of celebrity. And so here in 2011, uh, before uh, social media would really come into its own or just on the cusp of that, um, you know, we're, we're commenting on that. And so Wes Craven, it's like he could see into the future and how uh, the nation as, uh, you know, becomes obsessed with canonizing serial killers. You know, it, this, uh, this, you know, leads to a world in which 
you know, there's that, you know, that line between celebrity and mass murderer becomes increasingly blurred because we turn these serial killers into quasi-celebrities. And then we love, we want to be celebrities. And so I love all the conversations that this starts and all the ideas that it posits. And it had the heart and soul of the original. And the only way this would have worked is had it been directed by Wes Craven. Wes Craven's also a co-writer on it. Uh, so, um, or was he the, was he the writer? Crap. Uh, he was, uh, Kevin Williamson that's is right. the writer who I, he did the first one, I believe as well. Right. Uh, yes. So I, yeah. so that's why it works. This is, it's my, my first favorite scream is the original scream fours right after that. And the fact that we, um, that, the, that the 2020s, will be the like the first decade that there's you know at least unless something happens there's no new scream movie and so because <laughs> uh, we had scream movies in the 90s the 2000s and then the 2010s and so this will be you know after you know three decades this will be the uh the first decade that we don't have a new scream movie uh so so that's kind of sad and uh it was i i i i loved uh, i love scream 4 and i've rewatched it several times and perhaps it is not it doesn't have the artistic achievement as say midsummer or even black coat's daughter uh but i um I, it has a great story has great characters and west craven truly you know was a genius and i love that we got to experience that one last time so did it have a feeling of finality to it? Like, um, I mean, I know all the screams generally, or at least the, f the first two, which are the ones that I've seen, don't really open it up for sequels, but they don't necessarily close it for sequels either. Uh, does this one feel like a definitive send off of the series? It does. There's, there's definitely a yeah. sense of finality in this. And perhaps that's why the Scream TV series just didn't really work. Uh, because there, this was a, uh, it was uh, it was okay. MTV, and then it switched over to another network. I uh, was it FX or I don't know, but it was like it was like it was MTV originally. Um, but I, I think that that could be why. I, I think Scream works as a movie. I don't think it works as a series, uh, much like a lot of the slashers. I don't think slashers work as series. I I do think there are other horror films which could. Be a series, for instance, Doctor Sleep. I I do feel that you could have a you know a King Universe TV series, much like I mean I guess we do with Castle Rock, but I think you even could make just like Doctor Sleep into a TV series. Um, and think of some others which would make a good uh, a good series. Um, I can't I can't think of anything else off the top of my head. But yeah, but slashers they just typically don't, and I I think that's why the TV series suffered. So some just should be you know standalone films and you know, uh it's it's just sad you know we're not going to get another you know west craven film i mean this was it so uh it's i think you know for the last work he would give us he just he poured i think he always poured his heart and soul into everything he did as he's also responsible for having reinvented the genre you know uh two three time you know two three times and uh, and i think this was um you know a great you know last example you know of you know what he's been able to contribute to not only you know horror films but films in general
it's really good that he was able to kind of have one that was, you know, felt like a conclusion before passing. Yeah. So it's wonderful. So Ryan's number one is Scream 4 from all the way at the beginning of the decade or almost uh, at 2011. Yeah. So, you know, it was nice. that I think you started number five was from 2017 and 2011. So we have a good <laughs> mix of, <laughs> of uh, the entire decade. So before we close out, uh, do you want to list some honorable mentions that you had, Ryan? Sure. I, I, I've got, uh, in terms of horror comedies, I love Tucker and Dale versus Evil and Cabin in the Woods. Yeah. Uh, check those out, listeners. They're, um, I know Tucker and Dale versus Evil is usually on a streaming service, and Cabin in the Woods oftentimes is too, so you should have no trouble uh, finding it for free. Uh, Krampus, I love a good holiday horror film, and Krampus is great. Uh, it also made for a great house at Halloween Horror Nights 25, no, 26, Halloween Horror Nights 26. There was a house and translated to that really well. Uh, I rewatched Krampus this past Christmas and it still holds up. Uh, Tony Collette from Hereditary is in, uh, Krampus. And so we have, uh, so that one's a lot of fun. Um, uh, some others that we, uh, haven't talked about between the two of us, 10 Cloverfield Lane. Love it much oh, more than Cloverfield. Excellent film. Very Hitchcockian and a lot of it's the way it's made as well. There's even a uh, horror musical that I think people should check out, Stage Fright. It's got Minnie Driver and Meatloaf in supporting roles. Oh. Uh, so uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's a it's a horror musical. Sure. And I like it more. But, and Anna and the Apocalypse is another more recent example, but I like Stage Fright more than Anna and the Apocalypse um so a happy death day was another fun one i think a lot of my honorable mentions were more of the comedic ones um so mm-hmm. that so when i so looking back at my list like gee a lot of these are you know tend to be you know um you know on the funnier side and and of course i i cannot not mention crawl also from august that's another one I missed that I want to check oh, out. Oh, you got to check it out. Crawl came yeah. out of nowhere. Nobody thought two shits about this movie. It looked like just a generic, schlocky, really yep. bad <laughs> B-movie. And yet it met with both audience and critical acclaim. It was just, it was so good. So much fun. Unapologetic B-creature movie, but it rocks the shit out of that. And it is entertaining as fuck i highly recommend watching (laughs) crawl i also watched that with my sister over christmas and she loved it absolutely loved crawl uh so that one um i know it's funny um kevin brackett from real spoilers does not like crawl and so it was funny uh he uh, made a, I mentioned Crawl a couple of weeks ago, and he's like, every time somebody loves Crawl, an angel loses its wings. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and so um, I'm like, uh, and so I, I thought that was a, a funny retort. But, um, but yeah, I, I, you know, so many people like Crawl, and it really did come out of nowhere. I mean, nobody thought this was going to be good, and yet it, it, it's really good. And I think it's, I think it's going to be, um, uh, you know, just uh, I think it's one that will be rewatched a lot, and uh, so I, I recommend it to, to people who didn't miss it because it did look bad, and it's it's not bad. It's just it 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 does. It's a creature feature, but it in the very best way possible. Yeah, I'm a sucker for like a creature feature as long as the effects are good with it, and so from what I've heard, it just seems like it's going to be a, a movie that I can really just like turn my mind off and enjoy. Oh, so yes. I'm, I'm <laughs> waiting for HBO to, or something to put that on. Oh, but yeah. 
Um, I watched two other horror films uh, yesterday, and both of them are on my honorable mentions. Happy Death Day. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned that previous, uh, previously. I was surprised by how much I liked that. It has very similar uh, vibes as the Scream franchise, so I thought that that was pretty fun. Uh, the Babadook also, I don't know. Have you seen that one? I have. And, uh, I'm still trying to find out how the Babadook has become a gay icon. Cause I don't know if you've caught that yeah. on social media. <laughs> it's, it's a thing. And like, how, I, I don't, it's like, I've only seen Babadook once, maybe twice. And, and I, I, I must be missing something, but just out of nowhere, this last pride season, I would see rainbow Babadook popping up on Twitter. I'm like, well, I, I I don't I don't know where that was from. So I I I I I'm, I'm guessing you saw the same thing. I'm still trying to figure yeah. it out. <laughs> yeah, one of one of my friends told me that too, and that uh, Pennywise also is. And yes, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, so he he told me about that, and I thought it was hilarious. Um, and I I looked into it really briefly, and I think what happened is somebody joked about it on Tumblr or something, okay. and then somebody showed a screenshot of the Babadook in the LGBT uh, like section of Netflix. Oh, and I think I think it was like a, a fabricated image okay. or whatever. But because <laughs> of that, that went viral, and then uh, and everybody loves you know the way he's dressed and everything like that. So. Um, but above that, yeah, the movie is is really good, and it's similar to It Follows in the sense that it has that kind of ever present dread and yes. dealing with grief thing. So, um, and it's, yeah, a it's a great Australian movie. film, if I remember correctly. Yeah, uh, Jennifer Kent. Yep. Um, and then the other ones I mentioned were A Quiet Place, which, uh, you know, I mean, I guess that's horror, and I I really like that one. And then Cabin in the Woods as well, which is just. You know, it's a hoot. <laughs> uh, yep. Just where that movie goes, you know, similar to Ready or Not, it really goes for it, and it's just bonkers. So it is. Where else are you going to get a a kill scene with a with a, a unicorn ramming ramming this dude? And so <laughs> I mean, like, it, it's it's just like when soon, when you know that a guy gets killed by the horn of a uh, by the horn of a unicorn, you know, just all bets are off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So this has been our Decade Marathon episode on the best horror films from the 2010s. Ryan, as always, it is a blast to have you on the podcast. I always love learning about horror films and talking to you about them, and I really like how every time I leave this, I have a whole bunch of things that I can add to my watch list. So thank you again for coming on the podcast. Uh, thank you very much, Madi, for having me again. It's uh, always a pleasure, and I look forward to our next conversation. Your listeners can find me on Twitter at RLTerry1 or follow my blog uh, and or follow my blog at RLTerryRealView.com. No, only one. Oh, oh, just one. Okay, just one or the other. (laughs) Well, I'm more active on Twitter. So if you want to hang out with me and you are only going to follow me one place, you know, if you follow me there, then I'll I'll connect you with not only the content that I put out, (laughs) but I'll connect uh, your listeners with all kinds of great content creators out there. Yeah, and I will provide uh, the links for both your Twitter and your blog. And of course, you should follow both of them. They're both excellent. The intro music for this episode is a piece called Work by Kevin McLeod, and you can find more of his work at incompetech.com. If you'd like to keep up with this podcast and find out when we release new episodes, you can follow us on Twitter at MovieMarapod or on Facebook at facebook.com slash MovieMarapod. That's Movie M-A-R-A Pod. And you can always reach out to us at our email, moviemarathonerspod at gmail.com. 
You can find more episodes of this podcast on Podbean at moviemarathoners.podbean.com. And we are also on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, and Spotify. So please subscribe or write a review if you like what we're doing. And any feedback you have to help improve the podcast is always appreciated. So thank you all for listening and thank you for making the Decade Marathon series such a blast. Uh, I hope you'll join us again next time when I am joined by Tom from the Movies After Work podcast to discuss the sudden, maybe, best picture frontrunner, maybe, 1917. So until then, bye. Mad Magazine. Advertising mascots. B-movie posters. And cartoons. Oh yeah, can't forget cartoons. If you get the funky connection that ties these pop culture gems together, you'll dig two designers walk into a bar. See, we're a couple of creatively curious pals living between the bookends of grand museums and dive bars. Hey, you know the place, the sweet spot where highbrow and lowbrow become drinking buddies. So join our barroom chats as we talk influential work and uncover stories of how the familiar became iconic. Think behind the music for the stuff we love. Check out our website at twodesignerswalkintoabar.com. And listen wherever you get your podcasts or visit evergreenpodcasts.com.